We need to believe that we are stronger than we think. We are more resilient than we think. And we absolutely can achieve. Yes, it's hard, as you said. Yes, the trajectory to the dream is tough. And I was pushed down that mountain a thousand times. But I got up, I kept going. So it isn't so much about failing, because I did. But it's how do you pick yourself up after failing? I'd like to ask you some questions. Do you consider yourself the kind of person that gets things done? Are you able to take a vision and transform that into action? Are you able to align others towards that vision and get them moving to create something truly remarkable? If any of these describe you, then you, my friend, are a leader, and this show is all about and all for you. Welcome to our 20th episode. This is the Sweet on Leadership Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Sweet on Leadership. Thank you very much for joining me. I am absolutely over the moon to be talking and bringing to you one of the most amazing spirits that I have encountered on this planet. She is somebody that I have a great deal of love for. I never knew when we met how much I would jive with you and how much I would feel an immediate connection with you. And I really just... I can't wait for everybody else to experience a little bit of Debbie because it's the vitamin D you never knew you needed (laughs) and it's coming at you today. So welcome Debbie Potts to this podcast and thank you so much for taking the time to join me and sharing your amazing story. You're welcome, Tim, and thank you for inviting me. This is amazing. And yeah, I jive with you too. So it's, it's mutual and I have a lot of love and respect for you too. So great. Let's let's do this. Oh, uh, yeah. So, Debbie, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, let people know mm-hmm. what you're all about. And then I've got some really big curiosities as we, we talk about your journey. And so, yeah, please let everybody know who you are. So, um, sure. My name is Debbie Potts, as Tim said, and I am the director of a virtual assistant business, which is a business based in the United Kingdom and registered in the United Kingdom. I serve my clients in all sorts of ways. I provide services to help them run their businesses. I do social media for them. I fix their websites. I redo their websites. Basically, I turn my hand to anything. I really class myself as not only a business owner, but also a survivor and a conqueror of two-time ovarian cancer. So for me, that's kind of my biggest achievement. It doesn't define me, but it is something that has made me who I am today. And I'm so happy to join you. Well, I appreciate it. And in case you're wondering, dear listener, Debbie helps me all the time. And she's brought an entirely new level of control and ease around my own business. But that's not why we're here today. We're not to talk about the power of an amazing assistant although that is something we're going to get into. And I don't even think of it as an assistant. I think of a power of an amazing collaborator who rounds off your edges and supplements your leadership style or your business in ways that you can't even imagine. Okay, that's part of it. But let's talk about the journey. I'd love you to to let us into the story of the Red House. And I think for all of the leaders that are listening, this is an amazing parable around 
or an amazing example of what happens when you you set a vision and you achieve it and how it can have what I see from the outside being a profound effect on on a person's trajectory. Notwithstanding, yeah, notwithstanding the the battles that you've been through. And I think that's part of the story. But the metaphor of the Red House to me is just so inspiring. So that's what I'm really hoping that we can get into today. So could you give us a little bit of a background in terms of what the Red House is? Take us up to the, the lead up of what was happening where you first had this dream. Okay, so so basically my dream about living in a red house in the middle of the countryside near the forest and near the sea started way back decades ago, really, when I first came to Sweden and we took a trip into the countryside and I saw all these little red houses dotted around everywhere. And the colour of these red houses is specific only to Sweden and it's called Falu Röd. So I had a dream to live in a Falu Röd house. So there. So at the time, Dan and I, my partner, were living and working in London. And I thought, how on earth am I going to make this happen? I work in a school. I don't work remotely. I have to go to school every day. I can't, you know, work in London and live in a red house. It's just not going to work. What should I do? It was a lot, a lot of knockbacks at first. I applied to many positions here in Stockholm thinking, okay, I'll just change my job. But of course, not speaking the language was a big sort of negative. So every job that I applied for was a no. Just to back us up, when did you have this vision? What year was that? Oh my gosh, that would have been 2009. 2009? Yes. The way I sort of dreamt it was after my visit to Sweden, I I went back home and I printed a picture, any picture, Tim, of any red house. And I stuck it on the wall above my computer. And obviously I would look at this whenever I came to sit at my computer, I would see this and it would just keep sort of the cogs turning. Okay, so how do I turn that picture into a reality? First was job so that I could work in the country that I want to live. Second was, well, I need money. (laughs) Houses don't fall from trees. Yeah. I've got to have some money. And of course, I'm working with my partner, Dan, on this dream. So, you know, we decided to, for now, do sort of a feasibility study and look at where could we possibly live? Because a dream can only become reality to me when I physically see the possibility rather than think it or see it virtually. In the late 2000s, you start to think of this and you mm. and you put these pictures out behind your computer as a, a bit of a vision board. You're approaching it practically. You're not approaching it with a distant dream. You're bringing it close saying, yeah. where could this exist? The default being Sweden, obviously. Absolutely. And I did have that dream aspect as well. I mean, I would go to sleep dreaming about the Red House. I would talk about it at work with my colleagues. I would talk about it with my friends and family. So, and that's all I was obsessed by. Everybody kind of knew, oh, what what does Debbie want? She wants to live in a Red House. That's been known for years. So the Red House was this picture, this avatar for something. What did the Red House represent to you? 
oh my gosh, it represented freedom. It represented achievement. It represented living life on my terms. And obviously I love nature as you do. And it just represented, you know, being able to be close to nature and, you know, completely do a 180 turn around of my life. You know, I lived in a big city, London, full of people, full of traffic, full of everything. And I've now completely reversed that. And, you know, I've, I've told you about this before in our conversations. These, you know, this little village I live in has 10 plots, but only eight houses. And that's us. And eight families that now are collecting eight as a families. community. When you think about that, then the Red House was such a clear delineation, was such a clear step off what you knew. It was a polar opposite from that perspective. Absolutely. But I, I do remember you sharing with me at one point, the Red House was just a representation and you'd identified all of those outcomes you were looking for. That could have manifested in a bunch of different ways, right? You could have found nature somewhere else. You could have found yeah. peace somewhere else. Yeah. But it also was my love of Sweden anyway. And because I love the country and because you know, um, so it was a whole mind shift change because not only did I have the picture of the Red House above my computer, but I also enrolled myself in London to have Swedish lessons so that I could ah. start learning the language. Okay, so I so was sort of ticking off all the things I needed to do for myself to be able to achieve this dream. So you were putting and in the small things in place. All the little gonna... bits and pieces, yes. Okay, so late 2000, you're coming up with these plans, you've got this vision, you're starting to tick off the small items. What happened then? What was the next thing? that? It just became an impossible dream, if I'm honest with you, if yeah. I'm genuinely honest. Yeah. Prior to the pandemic, it became an impossible dream. Was never going because, to Because, no, I could not see myself finding a job that would, you know, give me enough money to achieve this dream, nor could I see myself finding a job in Sweden and then achieving the dream. The clarity around it started to take you farther away from the reality. It, it started did. to pose, you know, yeah. real concrete frictions Absolutely. with your current life. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Absolutely. So, so you went through these exercises, then you faced this hero's journey of now the challenge was starting to appear as impassable. Absolutely. This is pre-pandemic. So yeah, yeah. pre-pandemic. And pre-battle um, with ovarian cancer. Pre-battle, I was healthy Debbie, you know, working, living in London, enjoying life. And what I decided to do was I thought, okay, I'm not going to give it up totally. Because it's, you know, when you really want something and you just are not prepared to kind of compromise or give it up, I thought, okay, these battles are here for now. Let me just plod along with my work and, you know, think about how do I overcome this obstacle of living in London, but I really need to be in Sweden. And there's a lot of little things you've got to do. I had to research, how do I get a Swedish visa how do I, you know, legally, <laughs> all of these other little things. How do I get a bank account? How do I do this? So I thought, let's just do those little things. So I started a spreadsheet. I'm the spreadsheet queen. And on it, I had all the things I needed to achieve with a box, you know, with tick off. Okay, that done. And then notes on the side that tell me, okay, so for a visa, you need to do this, da, 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 da. 
And I just sort of left that slide and kept going. Um, I also subscribed to a property selling website, yeah. marketing yeah, website. Yeah. And, and I would right. just, yeah, just look every morning. That's the first thing I did. I didn't check my, my work emails. I didn't do anything. I would just spend 15 minutes looking to see what's on the market where. So even though part of your conscience was telling you that this is not going to, let's happen. say the logical part of your brain is, is fighting you saying, this is not logical. You say, okay, broke it down to the little tasks, you know, you could action. And I mean, for any of you who've worked with me on working genius, which is Patrick Lencioni's new piece, this is very clearly the genius of tenacity, right? It's pulling things into manageable chunks that we then are going to accomplish. But and, also not giving up, Tim. And not people, giving lots up. Lots of people yeah. give up and they just yeah. say, oh, okay, it's not going to happen. And they shelve it. Whereas so, you, you uh, disaggregated it down to its constituent parts that could start, instead of going for that great big island off in the distance, you swam to this sandbar and then this sandbar, and then this sandbar, and slowly the island is coming a little closer and a little closer. That's right. Yeah. And in English, the saying, you know, I had all my ducks in a row. So I spent nearly five years putting all these little ducks in a row, you know, finding out, okay, how, you know, what do I do to get a bank account? Okay. If we lived in this area, how far away is it from the airport? You know, in case I've got to travel back to London or anywhere for that matter, how do we get broadband or internet connection to a house that's in the middle of the forest. What do I do? I don't want to get into this too far because I think that's fodder for another conversation. Mm. But this is so you. I mean, this yeah, is what you do for me all the time when I'm feeling when I'm feeling overwhelmed and I've got too many things on the goal, you're like Stop. break it down. Break yeah. it down. Let's get this into into the easiest thing you can do next. What's just yeah. the one easiest step you can take which is so can i can i just add a little please. bit more that um just so that we can get to the red house now you got it so Go for it all, all of this happened and i sort of like okay i'll just do these bits and find out so that i'm totally prepared if and when the not even if when the time comes so fast forward to 2020 2020 okay 20th of march 2020 the whole of the uk shut down completely and i was like oh now i have to work from home for my school this is great for me who absolutely loves tech and absolutely loves working from home now my red house popped up front and center because it's i soon clocked on that oh my god if i can work from home for my school i can work from anywhere this is it. I, I, I've got my answer. It's, it's, that's it. I've got my answer. So in the middle of the pandemic, I um, decided, okay, I, I had a conversation with my executive head and I said to her, would you be happy? They knew I go to Sweden, you know, six, seven times a year. Would you be happy for me to work remotely from Sweden for the schools? I supported four schools at the yeah. time. Mm -hmm. Of course, she said, no, we need you here, Debbie, physically. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's a no. So I thought, okay, what do I do then to make this remote working dream become reality? Since we're in a pandemic, people have now understood that you can work remotely globally, as you mm -hmm. and I do. Yep. And I decided, 
what job can I do that will allow me to be able to do this? And I researched, I Googled, I watched so many podcasts or listened to so many podcasts, watched videos. And finally, yeah, why don't you be a virtual assistant on your own terms? Mm -hmm. So on the 4th of August, 2020, during the pandemic, I started my own business. You had to step away from your... No, I did it simultaneously because Ah. I I need the income, but I started because I don't know if my business is going to be a success. Of course, I'm going to put everything into it. But I thought, okay, I can do it on a part-time basis. I was lucky enough to have fantastic training. I found this amazing VA mastery course with this lady called Amanda Johnson. I absolutely adore her. And we'll put, a, um, we'll put a link I, of that into the into yeah, the totally. Yeah, I did her course, and that's what changed everything for me completely. It then made the steps to the red house achievable, and I knew it's going to happen. There was absolutely not one iota of doubt in my mind that this was going to happen in the next two years. Okay, so 2020 lockdown happens. Suddenly we have this new reality of working remotely and that opens a door that you're ready to step through. A hundred percent. I stepped through it. My business did take off really well, which was great. Yeah. And I, so I something remember had that's to when give. we met, right? Yes, something when had to were... give Tim because I couldn't continue with my full-time school job and run DAPVA Limited. So I had to, in February of 2021, I then handed in my notice and the period of notice I had to give was six months. So I said to them, you know what? Don't worry. I'll give you until the end of this academic year, i.e. July 2021. And then I'm gone. Not only will I work full time on my business, but I'll also be leaving the country to move to Sweden. So up pops another spreadsheet because now I have to do all the removal costs and all that sort of, you know, get the van or the lorry come and take all what will we be taking. And since we are left Europe and, and you know, Brexit happened, so we classed as a third country to Sweden. So I have to pay import charges and all of these things. Whereas before you could just literally drive your whole house to Sweden and that would not be a problem. So what's amazing about this to me is you made this decision, the move starts the unhooking from life as it was begins. Although, I mean, you you still do have deep connection to London. Your hill was getting steeper, not more shallow. I mean... Yeah, but it looked achievable to me. I oh, no, like, okay. absolutely. It was achievable. What I mean yeah. is that the, the difficulty level went up. That didn't stop you. It wasn't as easy as it would have been a few years prior, but that didn't stop Debbie. Debbie was yeah true. This you, point. you actually are yeah spot on, Tim. Because a few years prior, I wouldn't need a visa, nor would I have needed to pay all those thousands of pounds in imports. But fees. you had momentum at this point, and that inertia was carrying you up that change curve. That wasn't the end of your struggles. No, not at all. So obviously, you know, the beginning or the first half, I'd say, of 2021, I was working so hard with two jobs and being a school business manager is a stressful full-on job even though my contract was term time only so I thought okay you know I will have vacation time or holiday time and I will work on my business during those times and 
I'll make it work. Somehow, Tim, I always make it work. So it was full of excitement, anticipation. It I could literally, you know, see and touch the dream. I'd set up house viewings for Dan and I to go and, you know, view all these beautiful houses the next visit we had to Sweden. So it became, it started becoming, you know, when you can just taste something and you just have a little taste and it's so nice, you want to eat the whole thing. That's what was happening. So we did all these house viewings and we listed the, our favorites and blah, blah, blah. Went back to the UK, started winding down, packed up all our stuff in boxes that we wanted to bring to Sweden. We found a company that was great that would come and pick it up from door to door. And uh, literally one day before we were due to fly to Sweden for the move, I'd applied for my visa at this stage as well. And they said, look, you can come to Sweden anyway, even if it isn't quite granted yet, because, you know, um, you can stay on the 90 day rule that the UK nationals are allowed to stay in Sweden for 90 days per year. And your visa should come during that time. So all's good. So you can come now. I was like, okay, great. Everything's great. One day, Tim, the 4th of, of August, 2021, we had our British Airways flights booked on, on Thursday, the 5th of August. We were going to meet the removal van in Stockholm on Friday, the 6th of August. But on the 4th, I should just back up a week or so, I went for what I thought was a routine scan and had the scan and left it. And it usually takes about 10 days before you find out the results. Got a call from my GP on the 4th of August saying the morning of, no, sorry, she phoned me on the Monday. So that was the 4th was a Wednesday. She phoned me on the Monday and said, Debbie, I don't think you'll be going to Sweden. And I said, no, of course I'm going. Everything's sorted. We're flying on Thursday. She said, no, we have your scan and it's, you have cancer, basically. So I'm like, what? No. She goes, just to be sure, let me uh, do another scan. So I said, okay, can you do it before Wednesday? Because I'm flying on Thursday. She said, I really don't think you're flying, but yes, we'll see you on, on Wednesday. So still, I didn't believe it, uh, Tim. I just thought, nah, it's a mistake. And you know, these scans are misread sometimes. But anyway, I'll go on, I'll go on, on on Wednesday. Yeah. So off I went alone, had a more detailed scan. First I had a just a pelvic ultrasound. And then I said, I can't wait for the results 10 days because I'm flying tomorrow. So can you just tell me what's on your screen? And he said, I remember the radiologist saying, see these dark clouds over here? And on both sides here, that's your left ovary, that's your right ovary, these dark clouds covering both ovaries, that's cancer. See these other dark clouds, that's your upper abdomen. Yep, see all how they're floating, looks like a skyline, that's cancer. You have cancer. Yeah, we don't know the staging yet because we've got to do more details. And I was like, oh, shock, I'm alone. What do I do? So um, I asked them, what would happen next? They said, okay, we do an MRI, which is more detailed, and that will definitively tell us what's going on. So I asked if they could fit me in that afternoon, and they did. It was about 2.30. I had my scan on, on the 4th of August. After the MRI, straight away, yeah, confirmed. 
So obviously I was a little bit, um, yeah, I was in shock. I was numb. I was, it, it, when I'm telling you this now, it doesn't even feel like it's me I'm talking about, but it is me. So I called, um, I actually didn't even call Dan first. I called Dan's best friend and his name is Anders. And I said, look, I'm probably going to die. So I need you to take care of Dan for me. So can you do that? And at this point I was crying. He couldn't even hear me. And I, you know, so I just said, just promise me that you'll do this for me because, you know, it's important. Yeah, of course, whatever you need, blah, blah, blah. Then I phoned Dan. I told him he came over straight away to the hospital along with my two daughters. And yeah, we just were a little bit in shock. The doctor came, spoke to us all. And it was at that point I knew, well, we're not going to Sweden. So we went home and we played a board game and ate sandwiches. That's the first thing we did, which is, I don't, I can't tell you why. That red house that was so close, you could almost taste it and you wanted more. Suddenly, I was, was on my way. Was suddenly, like it was right there. And suddenly it's just now thrust farther and farther away. From yeah. You. It's not about the house. It's just that, you know, as the, as a backdrop to your cancer journey, that you weren't going to Sweden. Not at this time. No, but you went home and you ate sandwiches. And, and played a board game. Played a board game. Yeah. God knows what, why. What what happened next from a now you're you're redoing all the math at this point. I was a, no, I didn't even. Now I thought about life and death. So now my my whole sort your of mindset two changed. I didn't even look at that for about a year, actually. <laughs> well, if you what I mean is, if you meant one, it would have been pretty stark. It would have been life yeah. and death. That's it. Yeah. So I just decided to again. Because I'm such a practical, organized person. Okay, now death is coming. Let's get all my ducks in a row before I die. You know, so I need to do this, 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 and this. Okay, what should I do? Well, I didn't have a will, believe it or not. Okay, I need to get a will done. And even then, kind of, you know, Dan would say, look, that's not priority right now. We need to see what can we do about this disease. We have an appointment in two weeks' time. Everything in the UK is two-week wait under our national health system. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't sit here or lie here knowing I have ovarian cancer and wait two weeks to hear how they can help me. Anybody at all who's had any kind of diagnosis of a terminal illness, it does not just cancer loads. You can't wait, Tim two weeks and just stew over all the, you know, and the most dangerous thing is you go to Google and you start Googling and Google is the worst thing you can do when you've been diagnosed because the results it gives are not your results. They could be someone else's and, you know, you could be reading into it in the wrong way, which I did. I Googled how long can people with ovarian cancer live and they, you know, maximum two years is what I was reading. And I'm like, oh my God, I've got two years to live. No, I can't. So you were literally doom scrolling. Well, like without, a, we we use the term doom scrolling like lightly now, but you were. Yeah, I was, I was. Building up the doom. So I decided to try and speed up things again, make it happen. You know, it's in my power. And I just woke up one morning and after two days, I think, from diagnosis. So this would have been a Saturday morning. I woke up at 5 a.m. and I said to Dan, 
I'm getting dressed. I'm going to the hospital. He goes, baby, it's 5 a.m. Where are you going? I said, I'm just going to sit there until I can speak to someone. I'm not waiting two weeks. I really can't. And that's exactly what I did. I woke up. He came with me. We'd sold our car as well by this time. So we, because we were moving to Sweden. So we didn't have a car. Got an Uber to the hospital. And all your stuff is in a truck as well, right? Well, it's in Sweden. It's, it's, in Sweden. it's already made the journey. Yeah, we had to get Anders and other friends to come and offload for, for us. It was a nightmare, Tim, an absolute nightmare. And so at the hospital, I just waited. I, I went in there six o'clock as soon as the um, oncology department opened. I just, there was sort of seating just outside. And I sat there and waited. First staff member that came through, I'm like, I need to speak to someone right now. Right. So you were advocating for yourself. You're advocating for knowledge, for not yeah. being left in the lurch and saying. And no. also knowing, I need to know, you know, is this, yeah. you know, I know they've made what am I dealing so with many here? advances in, you know, the treatments of cancer today. It's not as it was 20 or 30 years ago. It's far advanced. So I just want to know, will I live or will I die? Can you put a timeline on it or can you not? What's the deal? And so, yeah, I did actually happen to speak to a really nice oncologist who looked at all my sort of notes and my scan results and everything. And he said, and this is where it got even worse. <laughs> he said, this looks so complicated. We actually can't treat you in this hospital. So we need to refer you to one of my colleagues. Her name is Angela. And she's, you know, the hospital just 20 minutes down the road. It's one of the best cancer research hospitals, certainly in the country and certainly in the world. And you'll be in good, good hands. Um, I'll make you an appointment for Monday. So yeah, go, go and see. No, no. He saw kind of the distress and, you know, and sometimes Tim, you have to go with your feelings. You have to trust what you feel like doing rather than keep second guessing yourself and say, yeah, you oh, weren't well. on anybody else's schedule. You weren't. No, on I was on my rules. own. Yeah. So that's another good sort of characteristic to develop because you know best and you know how things should be. So yeah, I would as far as forward. I went to see Angela, Dan and I first time ever stepping over the threshold of a cancer hospital. Surprisingly, it was a lovely place. Even today, it's still my happy place. And um, saw Angela, she did more tests, looked at me and said, Debbie, I'm so happy to tell you that we have developed a curative care plan for you. And that word curative, I will never forget the emotion, the rush of emotion. Our shoulders, both Dan and I, our shoulders dropped we just breathed, exhaled a deep breath out. We both started crying, but smiling at the same time, because now I knew I'm not going to die. So now I, this was knew, the question. Not hoped, knew. No, knew, knew, 100% knew. Yeah, she said curative. Yeah, while I was talking to uh, Dr. Angela George, I Googled her just to see and I saw that, wow, this woman is, she's a kick-ass boss lady. I mean, she is like head of genomics, head of research. She's fabulous. She's known the world over. So when I saw her credential, I almost then, and I still joke with her today, I say, oh my God, you're a goddess. 
she's she's from um, New Zealand. And I always say to her, I didn't see her for two weeks one time and because she was on vacation. And when she got back, I was like, oh, my God, Dr. George, I missed you. Where have you been? Oh, I went home to New Zealand. Oh, great. What did you do there? Oh, you know, my mom had a long list of chores for me to do. I went, what? <laughs> Does your mother not know who you are? You are Dr. Angela. Can I, I need to speak to your mom. You should be home eating grapes with somebody standing fanning you and you know, caring to your every need and whim. And she's like, Debbie, I'm a human being just like you are. It's funny what I wouldn't give to hear Dr. Angela's perspective and perception of you through all of this. Man, that would be so that would be something to hear. Yeah, so, I have heard it. Yeah, that's for another time. Okay. But anyway, so once she said that and and we knew both Dan and I almost in unison said, okay, what should we do? Tell us what to do and we will do it. And that was our mindset going forwards, even till today. It's tell us what to do, we'll do it. And of course, they then, you know, just to speed it up to him, otherwise we'll be here forever. She put a, um, you know, six months chemo, followed by surgery, followed by monitoring tests. And basically that's the plan. Yeah. And, you know, had all sorts of ups and downs during that time, had nearly had my right leg amputated. I reacted badly to my first chemo drug, paclitaxel. I'll never forget that. I'm allergic to paclitaxel. And on a scale of one to five, one being the not so bad, I'm a five. So I basically passed out and woke up three hours or four hours later with all these things attached, my beautiful red dress, split in half because time was of the essence. So they have no time to like, oh, let's not spoil her dress. <laughs> and, you know, I'm here. I'm a fighter. I'm here. I'm resilient. You gave yourself over to the process. That process was a curative process. That process was one more thing that you needed to do to... To achieve my red house. And, and to achieve this red house. So I had to also have some some um, psychotherapy whilst I was being treated for cancer because, yeah, it's an aggressive cancer that I have and it's also um, aggressive treatment for it. So during my one of my um, therapy sessions, I remember my therapist said, Debbie, you need an anchor. You need something to hold on to throughout this process. And we call it an anchor and that's going to anchor you and keep you steady and and so what is your anchor? And immediately I blurted out, the red house. That's my anchor. I'm just going to live and fight this battle for the red house. Of course, you do it for your, you know, my beautiful partner, Dan, for my children and for the grandson I didn't yet have at that time. So, you know, I'm doing it for all of them, but I'm also doing it for the red house. And the red house is so much more than just a building. I mean, it is an expression of everything that you were heading towards what an optimum life looked like for you. I mean, often when we're doing, we're doing career, uh, co when I'm coaching and we're looking at somebody's career, I ask them the question, you know, what is, what is this all for? What's your future look like? And when it comes to a job, I'll say, what is the best day of the last year you're ever going to work look like, or the last year of your career going to look like? And then that's our North Star. That's the one that we're going towards. And this red house was your North Star. It was indeed. It was indeed. But also it was a place 
because both Dan and I are very um, sociable people. We are gregarious. We are, we love friends and family. And we said, we're not going to get a little red house that just fits us too. We're going to get a red house where everybody can come, our friends, our family. It's just a place of community and socializing and fun and laughing and enjoyment and love and sitting around the fire. It's all of that, Tim. So the Red House is the Red House, but it is a bigger vision than just the Red House. Let's maybe use this then to talk about, and and like not to, to gloss over this, you have still, you still had to battle. You've still had other aspects when it comes to the cancer journey. You're thankfully healthy now, but it has come at no small amount of effort, right? At the same time, you are now in the dream. You are, the dream is now reality. So give us a sense of what were the surprises? What were the surprises, the little things that this house has meant to you, that this new life has meant to you, that achieving this goal has meant to you? And also perhaps the things that you never thought were going to happen that suddenly are realities. What does life look like now in the dream? Oh, it's wonderful. I can't, I actually have another dream because I can't live without a dream. We always have to have a dream, but that's something else I'll tell you at the end. Remember to ask me what my dream is now. It's wonderful. I I really cannot stress enough how as human beings, we need to believe that we are stronger than we think. We are more resilient than we think. And we absolutely can achieve Yes, it's hard, as you said. Yes, you know, the trajectory to the dream is tough. And, you know, I was pushed down that mountain a thousand times, Tim. But I got up and I I kept going. So it isn't so much about failing, because I did. But it's how do you pick yourself up after failing? Do you hold on to that North Star, that anchor? What do you do? And, And that's exactly what I did. I held on. And held on. And, you know, I made sure I shared my dream with everybody I came in contact with. Dr. Georgia, when I had my second, my recurrence, my cancer came back after five months of being clear. And she knew I had this dream. And she said, Debbie, don't get distressed because we can we can treat this by by surgery. So look at this as a big boulder in, in you know, you, you going along the road to your dream, all of a sudden a boulder comes and gets in your way. What do you do? Just go around it and then continue. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go around the boulder and put you back on your road. And yeah, again, you know, that was so close, Tim. We we came back in, in June of 2022 after being given the all clear. We were here four days. The surgeon in London phoned and said, I'm sorry, we you're scared. And you had two weeks ago showed two masses, one seven and a half centimeters, one three and a half centimeters. You need to come back. Four days, Tim. Yeah, I went back and 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 then in February of this year, it all came to, to be. I didn't wait for the all clear. I made an arrangement with my hospital in London that, you know, I'll come back every three months for treatment and tests and scans. So in February, we looked at 13 houses in a in two days. And it's a big area that we had to cover. Everything is like 30, 40 minutes apart. And we looked at 13. I actually got sick from looking at so many old houses. 
Um, and then um, went back to London, packed up a few things that we could now bring with us. By this time, we bought another car. So we packed the car up, drove to Sweden from London with our stuff, put an offer into the house that we saw, which was this one. It was accepted by the lovely Gustav, who is the developer, and he built this house with his own hands. And when we finally met, we shared our story with him. He started crying. We started crying. He goes, as I was building this house, I was hoping that it would go to someone with love and who saw it for what it was. And well, he, he goes, had I no was, idea. <laughs> yeah, no idea. It, it was for me or for us. He he even said I was going to paint it white because I'd ordered the red paint, and then I thought, no, all the other houses are white. I need to paint this one white. So he phoned the company where he ordered the paint from and said, look, can I change from red to white? And the company said, sorry, no, we've already mixed your paint for you. It's coming. So he said, oh, okay, don't worry. I'll just paint it red. How about that? Well, it's, you know, we can talk about serendipity for sure, but I'm sure Gustav, he had no idea when he was looking for somebody that would love that house, just how much meaning it would represent. Oh, he said that. And we actually invited him back after we'd moved in and, you know, changed things. The garden was developed and it's now furnished and it's got our stamp on it. And he came over and again, he was filled with tears. And he's like, this is exactly what I had in mind that you would do in this room when I built it. This is how I, I you know, our open plan kitchen and living room has a fika area. Remember fika, very important. He actually said, I want this to be the heart and where we all gather. And for sure, Tim, everything happens in the fika area. Yeah. And fika for those that don't know, what's the word? It is the art of Swedish coffee drinking where you, go. you take time to be in the moment with friends, colleagues, family, whoever, no electronics, nothing. You just are present and enjoy each other over a cup of coffee or tea and a bun or a sweet treat. <laughs> I think it, I think that's really interesting to, th to think. I see you living always in two zones. You were very clear about what your vision was, but you didn't step too far away from the moment. Because you were always working. You were always working in the moment. You worked not in somebody's two-week time frame, but you said, no, I got to go advocate for myself. And you did. And then, and then everything for you has been a balance between things being far away and having that North Star, but then doing what makes immediate sense in order to leverage the situation that's in front of you. But I think it all circles back to um, what you said in the very beginning. You know, the Red House signifies this dream or vision or lifestyle that I wanted to have. And without that clear, definitive dream or vision, I don't feel I could have achieved it. So if I'd said, well, I could live in a Red House, maybe a green one would do. Oh, I don't mind if it's close to the city or... You know, maybe it can just be in a field. I'm so sort of wishy-washy. But this, in this case, you did not compromise, right? No, it was a definitive kind of vision where it had to be. And the picture said it all. I, I wish I knew whose house that was. But it was, you know, close to water with the forest there, right there, and clearly in the countryside. And that is, uh, that's how I wanted to live. 
Yeah, it's a it it will be a question whether or not that was predetermined or if that is something that you made the most likely, most statistically possible. I think it's a bit of both. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both because I, I believe this is my path. And, you know, throughout it, I didn't sort of say, oh, I'm the cancer person, even though I introduced myself as that. But I always do put a caveat that cancer has never defined me. I still worked on DAPVA Limited during my chemotherapy and in hospital. And, you know, I still did all the things I could do until I couldn't. And when I couldn't, I took an eight month break because I had to focus on my recovery and beating this disease. But as soon as as I was able to, I came back. And here I am. I've been working ever since. And it's a life without compromise in many ways is what I what I see. Like there's, of course, you make small adjustments. But would you say that through all this, your ability to, yes, both flow with things and move around the boulders as you need to, that's a skill that you've obviously developed. But also, you're not living by anybody else's rules. Would you say that anything's changed from you in just that level of sort of determination? I've gained a resilience I never thought I had. You know, before pre-cancer, you kind of, or even pre-DAPVA limited, you kind of hear the word resilience. People talk about being resilient and it kind of sort of doesn't settle. But since I've now had to prove resilience, I feel that now I totally understand what that word means. I also understand what self-discovery means because never did I look inward. I would always just do things and never sort of think, how am I doing this? And what's my driver? What's the goal? I would just do it, you know? And so this whole becoming a business owner, having this dream, having cancer has has taught me and showed me that, yeah, I'm sorry to use the cliche, but we are so much stronger than we think. And I kept sort of feeding my brain with positive things. You know, a funny thing is, Tim, this house, before we even moved or even had viewed it in London, I bought all the um, soft furnishings for a a four-bedroom house. And, you know, Dan was like, you're crazy. You don't even know. It's going to have three bedrooms or four bedrooms. I said, no. I know, I'm just buying this room, this room, this room. I bought enough stuff for two bathrooms. He's like, we don't know if we're going to have two bathrooms, baby. I said, no, I know. Not everybody's going to always understand. And I think for those uh, the people that are listening, if this story doesn't give them some perspective in terms of just how, you know, if if you think your life is difficult, take a look at, take a look at what Debbie's overcome and, and adopt some of her principles. And I mean, what I'm, what I've jotted down here as we've been talking is that North star, that vision is among the first, the ability to break things down and to into manageable chunks, the ability to then build a momentum that's just incredible. And I remember back in the day, we used to say, you know, put yourself between the immovable object and the irresistible force. Right. And then, you know, you know, your situation may change and you're ready to be resilient for what unknowns are going to come up or what things, how the environment or how the situation is going to change. You need to flow with that. And I think it's also the power of positivity. You know, Rita Ernst, I I read her book at the time that I was, um, actually I was in hospital 
And, you know, it's just that positivity, Tim. I know it's it sounds like nothing, but oh my God, the power of positivity is a force that you cannot reckon with. I'm sorry. It's, you know, staying positive. That's also another thing I learned. You know, I, I did consider myself a positive person before cancer, pre-cancer, pre, but I didn't realize that a positivity actually can change your life. Well, and for those of you that are interested, Reed has been on the show a couple of times, or we've got two episodes with Reed on it. We'll put we'll put links to those in the yeah, show notes. Definitely. Your story about how you're able to advocate for yourself is one of the things that I love most about that is just when you are willing Thank to stand you. up for yourself, how many people will then stand up with you? Whereas if you're willing, if you're just going to relegate yourself to, you know, being part of some predetermined process, your, people will keep moving the way they were moving anyway. And I, I think back to Dolly Parton, she had this saying, if you don't like the road you're on, pave a new one. In your story, I just, so many times you found yourself on a road more rocky than perhaps you yeah, were anticipating. God, that is so true. Yeah, Dolly's words. Yeah. As we wrap up here, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the amazing things that are happening now. Your story has inspired many other people. I'm filled with gratitude, really, Tim, to be honest. Yeah. You know, every day I wake up, I'm alive, I'm healthy. I can do all the things that I could before my cancer, despite having body parts missing, i.e. I have a stoma, a colostomy bag on my um, left side, and I can still do everything. So I'm really grateful. So then I kind of thought, now I'm on my feet, My uh, I'm back at work. You know, I'm enjoying working with my clients who I love and adore, all of you, all of them. And how can I give back? How do, what do I do? What should I do? I can't just sit here and bask in the glory of the red house. So I decided to put myself in the the most uncomfortable position ever, which is speaking in public. And so I share my story wherever I'm invited in order to, you know, spread awareness that we can achieve, that getting a terminal or a serious illness diagnosis, perhaps is the better term, is not the end of the road. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, just maybe adjusting our mindset a little, because you do have to contend with dealing with your illness as well. But, you know, within that, try your hardest to see the positive side of these things. For example, having Chloe, that's the name of my stoma, Chloe the colostomy, <laughs> gets me priority boarding on any flight. So, wow, I love I love Chloe. And airport security, I just go present myself at the fast track with my little badge. And there I go, fast track. I never queue. That's silver, brilliant. So, silver linings. They are. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, I enjoy speaking one-on-one like this very nervous about speaking in public. And so yesterday I was invited to speak for a charity that actually helped us, Dad and I, in 2021 when we were down and out. It's called the Macmillan Cancer Charity, based in the UK. I love them to death. Well, no, I love them not to death, but I love them. And so I love them to life. And they said, would you come and share your story at our um, away day so that, you know, 
all the people who support and donate and work in this charity understand and just are reminded of why they do the job they do. It's because of people like me. They literally gave me life. They supported me when I was in my darkest moments in so many ways, Tim. And so I thought, yeah, of course I'll do it, even though my stomach was doing somersaults the whole time and I felt like throwing up and they offered me lunch and I couldn't eat. But I just thought, no, I've got to do this. And, you know, there was not a dry eye in the room and I didn't do it to make them cry. I said to them, no, I'm I'm emotional because I'm so grateful to have this platform, not only to share, but also to actually thank you, each and every single one of you, how much you, you know, helped us to thank you for you turned our lives around. And so, you know, what you do, please do not minimize it. You actually do change lives. Again, it's a story for another time, but we can talk about, you've shared with me how influential you're being locally around local government and on on other areas, you're exercising your advocacy. My voice, yeah. Yeah, your voice. Without making it too cute, if you weren't operating from this dream achieved, in a sense, you're in the Red House now, if you if you didn't have this new, these set of, of traumatic and like this amazing but very treacherous journey that you've been on, you're seeing things with new eyes. If you, if that hadn't happened, would you have the voice you have today? No, absolutely not. I'd be on the treadmill that I had been on for 34 years. Same old, same old, nothing new. So I'm going to ask you two things then. One is, let people know where they can connect with you. Absolutely. Where would you like them to connect with you? And the second thing is, if you had a wish for people that are listening to this today, mm. what would that wish be? Okay. Sure. So where can, where can people find you? So people can find me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. So it's just Google Debbie Potts. Uh, my company is DAPVA Limited. Uh, they can also just Google DAPVA Limited. We'll put those in the show notes. Perfect. So, yeah, I think my one wish for everybody who's listening and facing any kind of challenge, uncertainty, you know, indecisive, don't give up, find your anchor, find your North Star and work towards it because you'll get there. And every step towards that star is going to be a a discovery about who we really are. Absolutely. But it also takes you that one step closer. No matter what, it takes you st- it takes you closer. So please don't give up whoever you are, wherever you are. Keep coming back to that, even when it seems that it's pulled away from you a little further, you know? Yeah, totally. Oh, you got it, Tim. You understand. All right. Well, Debbie, love you so much. And thank you for, oh, for spending time with me. That's okay. Okay. Well, you're so welcome. Thank you very much. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. There's so much more we could talk about. We didn't even get to talk about your next dream. Well, do you want to know what it is, Tim? I do, yeah. It's a Yamarina. Yeah. Six and a half foot <laughs> boat, speedboat. Oh, get that out. That has a sun deck at the back, enough for six to seven people. Okay. It's got a little table so we can have our dinner in the middle of the archipelago in the ocean. Yeah. There we go. 
it's got a cover so that Dan and I can go and camp out in the archipelago, should we wish. So I have a picture of a boat, so I'm working towards it. I'm close. I'm very close. The deadline or the timeline is March 2024 to purchase it, if not before. And then they will put it in the water. So I've been to speak to them. I've yeah. spoken. I'm, I'm a regular visitor. I go sort of every two weeks. They all know my name. They go, oh, hi, Debbie. You ready to buy the boat? I go, no, 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 not yet. But I have a question. So they're going to put it in the water for us in April next yeah. year. All ready and good to go. And then we're going to use it throughout the summer season. And then in September, October, they're going to pick it up and store it for us ready for the following year and they're going to clean it service it fix it and we don't even have to worry about any of that so in order to achieve that dream i first need a spot to moor my boat during the summer season so before i can buy the boat because it's pointless having a boat and i've got nowhere to put it during the summer season i had to go and find a spot and of course all the spots are taken because we live close to the water and you know everybody has their boats in the summer. So everyone was like, no, the spot is a two-year waiting list. No, I can't wait two years. That spot says, no, hardly anybody changed. You know what I did? I went old school, Tim. (laughs) I typed on a piece of A4 paper. I went, hi, everybody, new to the area. We live in Orkara, Rodmanza, and we're looking for a spot to moor our boats. If anyone knows of anybody who's giving up their spot or knows, please bring this number. Old guy rang the number. And he yeah. says, oh, yeah, I know a spot over, you know, maybe it's a five-minute drive from you. Is that okay? I went, absolutely. We got a spot. Oh, there you go. Got a spot. So Debbie's next dream is? The boat. The boat. The blue boat. What color? It is? It's white. So okay. <laughs> it's called a Yam, Yamarina. I'll send you a picture after this. Sounds great. All right. Can't wait to hear about Debbie's next adventure. Talk soon. Thank you so much for listening to Sweet on Leadership. If you found today's podcast valuable, consider visiting our website and signing up for the companion newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes. If like us, you think it's important to bring new ideas and skills into the practice of leadership, please give us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps us spread the word to other committed leaders. And you can spread the word too by sharing this with your friends, teams, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to tune in in two weeks' time for another episode of Sweet on Leadership. In the meantime, I'm your host, Tim Sweet, encouraging you to keep on leading.